0: Hello, and welcome to the Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition podcast. I'm Judy Sondheimer. This podcast will abstract selected articles from the October 2010 issue of JPGN. A complete table of contents and access to complete articles can be found online at www.jpgn.org or at the Society webpage at www.nasbegin.org, The October issue is headlined by an invited review entitled Role of Intestinal Transporters in Neonatal Nutrition, Carbohydrates, Proteins, Lipids, Minerals, and Vitamins by Baudry and colleagues from St. Gilles, France and Newark, New Jersey. More than 100 membrane and cytosolic transporters facilitating the intestinal absorption of carbohydrates, amino acids, lipids, minerals, and vitamins are currently recognized. In this basic review article, the authors enumerate the individual nutrients resulting from the digestion of human milk and various infant formulas, and then describe the transporter or transporters responsible for carrying these nutrients from the intestinal lumen into the enterocyte and on into the portal blood. The structure, function, and location of each transporter is described. This article is a very good review of recent advances in digestive physiology and is a great reference for teachers and for students alike. Two of the original gastroenterology articles look at intestinal permeability and its relationship to disease. The first is entitled, Butyrate and Type 1 Diabetes Mellitus, Can We Fix the Intestinal Leak?, by Lee and colleagues. The authors state that an intestinal permeability defect precedes the onset of type 1 diabetes mellitus and thus might be a permissive factor in its pathogenesis. Since butyrate strengthens intestinal tight junctions and reduces intestinal permeability, the authors hypothesized that enteral administration of sodium butyrate to diabetes-prone suckling rats would perhaps decrease the frequency with which diabetes developed in adulthood. They administered sodium butyrate 400, 600 or 800 mg per kilogram per day to groups three groups of diabetes-prone rat pups from day 10 to day 23 of life and similarly administered saline to controls. In follow-up experiments, more data were collected on pups given the 400 mg per kilogram per day dose. Animals were followed into adulthood for evidence of diabetes. The authors found no significant difference in the death rates from diabetes between treated animals and controls. However, there was a trend toward delayed onset of diabetes in the butyrate treated group. There was no difference in islet cell inflammation in treated and control animals. However, cytokine induced neutrophil chemoattractant 1 was significantly lower in the ileum and liver in the group treated with 400 mg per kilogram per day of butyrate compared to controls. There were no significant differences in ileal or colonic permeability as measured by tracer flux in treated and controlled animals. The authors concluded that sodium butyrate given before weaning had no significant impact on the death rate from diabetes in these genetically prone animals. The second permeability paper is entitled, Alterations of the Intestinal Barrier in Patients with Autism Spectrum Disorders and in Their First-Degree Relatives, by De Magistris et al. There is a persistent but poorly supported hypothesis that abnormal intestinal permeability is causally related to autism, the so-called leaky gut hypothesis. The authors of this study measured intestinal permeability using the lactulose to mannitol absorption ratio in 90 children with autism spectrum disorder and 146 of their adult first-degree relatives. Fecal calprotectin, a measure of intestinal inflammation, was also measured in all subjects. Patients were questioned about their gastrointestinal symptoms. The authors found abnormal intestinal permeability test results in 37% of the autism spectrum children, 21% of their first-degree relatives, and 5% of controls. 23 of the 90 autism spectrum patients reported that they were eating a gluten- and casein-free diet. This small subgroup had, on average, a lower permeability test than patients receiving an unrestricted diet, indicating a less permeable intestine. Fecal calprotectin was elevated in 24% of patients with autism and in 12% of their relatives. Gastrointestinal symptoms were reported in 46 of the 90 autism spectrum children, mostly constipation, diarrhea, and abdominal pain. Symptoms did not correlate with permeability test results or fecal calprotectin levels. These results are consistent with other studies that show an increased intestinal permeability in autistic children. The authors suggest that the presence of abnormal permeability tests in 20% of the first-degree relatives points to some hereditary factor in the intestinal tight junction in the families of autistic children. The next original GI article is entitled, Utility of Fecal Lactoferrin in Identifying Crohn Disease Activity in Children, by Pefricorn and colleagues. In this study, the authors evaluated fecal lactoferrin as a marker of active versus inactive Crohn disease. They collected fresh stool samples from children with Crohn disease scheduled for endoscopy or for a clinic visit, and from new outpatients undergoing colonoscopy for a variety of reasons. A polyclonal, antibody-based, enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay was used. Disease activity was estimated by the Pediatric Crohn Disease Activity Index. Of 101 study patients, 31 had active Crohn disease, 23 had inactive Crohn disease, and 37 had non-inflammatory bowel disease conditions. Four patients with ulcerative colitis and six with polyposis were excluded from analysis. Fecal lactoferrin was significantly elevated in active Crohn disease compared with inactive Crohn disease and non-inflammatory bowel disease conditions. Using a cutoff value of 7.25 mg per gram, fecal lactoferrin was 100% sensitive with a 100% negative predictive value in detecting active Crohn disease. Using a fecal lactoferrin cutoff of 60 mg per gram, Sensitivity was 84%, specificity 74%, positive predictive value 81%, and negative predictive value 77% for detecting active Crohn disease. The authors feel that fecal lactoferrin is a promising biomarker for active Crohn disease and may be a practical method to assess activity when all of the necessary clinical information for the Crohn Disease Activity Index are unavailable. The GI section this month also contains a number of descriptive articles of interest to practitioners. Three articles review recent experience with GI diagnostic techniques, double balloon enteroscopy, small bowel follow-through examination of the ileum, and changing indications for upper endoscopy. Five articles deal with surgical conditions, laparoscopic anterior hemifundoplication, GE reflux associated with congenital diaphragmatic hernia, risk factors for infant intussusception, esophageal anastomotic strictures after TE fistula repair, and outcome of neonatal intestinal anastomoses. One article looks at the efficacy of octreotide in intestinal lymphangectasia. Only one of these articles has any claim to statistical significance, but all contain interesting observations. Mm -hmm. The first Hepatology and Nutrition original article is entitled Analysis of Gene Mutations in Children with Cholestasis of Undefined Etiology by Matte et al. The discovery of genetic mutations in children with inherited syndromes of intrahepatic cholestasis allows for diagnostic specificity, even when the patient phenotypes are similar. In this study, the authors aim to determine whether mutation screening of target genes could assign a molecular diagnosis to children with idiopathic cholestasis. They obtained DNA samples from 51 subjects with cholestasis of undefined etiology and looked for mutations in several genes by a high-throughput gene clip. Genes studied were Serpin A1, JAG1, ATP8B1, ABCB11, and ABCB4. The sequence readouts for these five genes were analyzed for mutations and correlated with clinical phenotype. The authors found that 14 of the 51 cholestatic subjects, or 27%, had missense, nonsense, deletion, or splice-site variants. These patients had no syndromatic features and could not be differentiated clinically from the patients without genetic mutations by any biochemical marker or by histopathology. Among the subjects without genetic mutations, 10 or 20 percent had sequence variants in ATP8B1 or ABCB11 that involved only one allele, 8 had variants not likely to be associated with disease phenotype, and 19 had no variants that changed amino acid composition. This paper shows that even when we can't identify cholestatic patients clinically, we can describe them genetically. The hope is that specific therapy will someday derive from this knowledge. The next original hepatology article is entitled Follow-up in Children with Progressive Familial Intrahepatic Cholestasis After Partial External Biliary Diversion by Arnell and colleagues. The aims of this study were to determine whether hepatic fibrosis regresses after partial external biliary diversion in patients with progressive familial intrahepatic cholestasis, or PFIC, whether duration of cholestatic episodes after partial external diversion influences the evolution of fibrosis, and whether genotyping is helpful in predicting outcome of partial external diversion. Of a group of 18 children with PFIC, Thirteen underwent partial external diversion. Twelve of these, ten of whom had ABCB11 mutations, were available for follow-up. Compared with evaluation at the time of biliary drainage, statistically significant reduction in histological cholestasis was noted one and three years after diversion, and in fibrosis, five and ten years after diversion. The relative duration of cholestatic episodes after external diversion was positively correlated with the severity of original fibrosis children homozygous for the missense mutation c890a to g in the abcb11 gene responded particularly well to partial external drainage the author's experience leads them to support partial external biliary diversion as the first choice of surgical treatment in non serotic patients with ABCB11 disease and possibly other forms of PFIC. The last original hepatology article is entitled, Serum Levels of CK18, M30, and Leptin are Useful Predictors of Steatohepatitis and Fibrosis in Pediatric NAFLD, by Fitzpatrick and colleagues. The increasing prevalence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or NAFLD, in children has created a need for non-invasive methods to stratify disease severity. The authors evaluated a combination of serum biomarkers as a measure of disease activity in pediatric NAFLD. Forty-five children, median age 12.5 years with NAFLD, were enrolled. Median body mass index, Z-score, was 1.7. Caspase-cleaved cytokeratin fragments CK18-M30, hyaluronic acid, leptin, and adiponectin were measured by ELISA. C-reactive protein was measured colorimetrically. CK18-M30 levels were significantly higher in patients with NAFLD versus controls. Levels were higher in patients with steatohepatitis versus simple steatosis. Levels were also higher in patients with significant fibrosis compared to those with mild or no fibrosis. Median leptin levels were higher in patients with significant fibrosis than they were in those with minimal or no fibrosis. Adiponectin, hyaluronic acid, and high-sensitivity C-reactive protein did not achieve significance in predicting steatohepatitis or significant fibrosis. The authors conclude that using a combination of biochemical markers specific for different processes in the development of steatohepatitis, particularly CK18, M30, and leptin, may be a good non-invasive way to stratify disease activity in pediatric NAFLD. This article was accompanied by a very nice editorial by Feldstein and Nobili. This concludes the JPGN podcast for October 2010. For more information regarding the contents of this issue or to access the complete articles, visit the JPGN website at jpgn.org or the Naspegan website at naspegan.org. JPGN is the official journal of ESPIGAN and Naspegan. The co-editors are Eric Sibley and David Bransky. I'm Judy Sondheimer.